I do have my white cowboy hat on today because I am the good guy and RC is always the bad guy. And, uh, you know, we just, it's the mustache, I think, that makes him just so mean. You know, I think that's what it is. But as, as before we kind of get started, I want to encourage you a little bit. Um, my, my kids and I, um, we take the trash. You know, I put the boys in the, in the car, let's go. You know, you got to do man things. We got to take trash. Mom needs this. This is, we, do, we serve our families, right? Let's do this. So I put them in the car this week. And like, we take off down the road and I got a five-year-old and a three-year-old, right? And so amazing conversations happen with our boys. Uh, our daughter, she just talks all the time, but that's just a different story. Um, I didn't mean anything by that. And so as we we're going down the road, Carter, our five-year-old said, daddy, and he was pumped. I mean, he was excited because he, he, he loves church. And uh, I have nothing to do with that. It's because it's teachers. And I've understood why, based upon the next sentence that he stated, why he loves church, because I'm pretty sure it's because of Miss Jenny and her preschool class, because he, the next word that comes out of his mouth is, Daddy, I, I, the other day at church, we were making wine. And I thought, Are you, what is going on? <laughs> and I understand why you love it so much. This is so good, right? Little brewmasters going on, growing up out down the hall. That's whatever. Um, goodness gracious. But I, I, I had a moment, like, as a father, you're like, whoa, what do I do here? Do I, like, interrupt him and, like, explain what you mean, son, making wine, you know? Or do I just let this play out and just see how fun this is going to be? So we chose option B. And the curious father I was just couldn't like interrupt him on that. And so he began to explain like what's going on in Miss Jenny's class. And I'm beginning to like, what is going on in Miss Jenny's class? And he, oh, dad. And then we added purple to the wine. Uh, well, obviously you're not making wine if you added purple to the wine. So what are you doing? You know, this, the story's not quite clear yet. Uh, and so he continues on in his explanation. I still have no clue what is going on genuinely until the very last sentence where he said, and then we needed a sky, but I couldn't find my blue crayon. And it's, oh, you were coloring. I understand now. And I begin to think about all the things, honestly, that we were walking through in Romans. And we, it's like we... We are hearing God tell his story the way he has intentionally and perfectly had it written down for us. And then we, we're stopping him and like interrupting him in moments. and like, what's going on, God? I don't understand what's happening. And I think, honestly, my encouragement to us, as I was encouraged this week, is that we just need to read and reread the Bible over and over. Not to oversimplify things for us as we struggle with hard doctrines and truths of God and trying to know him, but let's read and reread and devote ourselves to hearing God's story the way he is trying to tell it to us. And let, let's just let him do the thing that he does perfectly in revealing himself, right? Amen. So let me encourage you in that way this week um, as, a, as a man encouraged me last week to do that very thing. Uh, and, and just to say, look, I know you're walking through some hard stuff. I've, I've been walking through this too, you know, and, and even six or eight months ago, I began to clarify my understanding even more so than what I thought I had already done years ago. And I didn't do that because I sat down and said, well, today I'm going to study the doctrine of Revelation, or excuse me, election from Genesis to Revelation and, uh, you know, write my thesis on it. No, I just... I devote myself to the word as best I can. And I was just reading 1 John in my daily devotional on time with the Lord. And so, and then the Lord just said, here you go, Jared. I, I, you know, 
And so I encourage you to do that. Just be in the Bible, be in the word and let God speak to you in that way. Um, so as we get going, that's our, that's our goal for the day. That's where we wanna be. We wanna be in the word and we want God to tell us his story the way he is planned to tell it to us, right? So in Romans 9, Paul is, is, is leading us in a direction and he, and he begins with this, this great plea. I mean, he has this heartache and, and gut-wrenching love that his fellow Jews would be saved. He, he speaks that, Lord, that you would do this, that you would, whatever it would take, God. And then he explains further on down that, that the promises of God have not failed the Jews because not all of them are true Israel like they thought they were. And that salvation is sovereignly granted by God and he gives mercy to whom he chooses to give mercy to. I mean, we kind of saw that last week when he talked about the, the vessels of mercy, which we'll kind of come back to in a minute. Um, and And... Who are those vessels of mercy? And that true Israel is not based on ethnicity, but instead on those who believe in faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's where our bottom line is today, solo Christus, which is in Christ alone. That's Latin for in Christ alone. And so this is where we can all agree. No matter where we stand on various doctrines, as Christians, we have to uphold this truth, right? We all in this room as Christians can say, yes, Jesus only. Jesus only. Election, you know, I don't know if you know this, but election does not save. Faith in Christ alone must save because it is through that faith in Christ alone in which we obtain righteousness and a right standing before a holy, just God, right? And so it is through that. Election does not give us righteousness. Christ gives us righteousness, and so let us hold fast to that truth and let's uh, stay there and linger there as Paul walks us through the next nine verses in Romans. And so the question we're going to answer, I've kind of just sort of segued into it or, or kind of brought it up just a second ago today is in this, this line of questioning. So he's asked a question and then he's answered it. And, he's, and then a couple weeks ago, I asked the question and he answered it again. And asked another question, he's answering it again kind of thing. And so the question for the day is, to whom will God show mercy? Or I'll, I'll restate it a few ways so you kind of understand. Uh, who are the promises of God for? Who will God save? Is there a particular ethnic people? And if so, how does God save them, Right? So Romans 9 chapter, or excuse me, Romans chapter 9 verse 24. Let's read this morning and try to begin to uh, understand what scripture says about this. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I mean, Paul in verse 24 is concluding a thought that he is saying that God is showing mercy on a particular people and clarifying to us who those vessels of mercy are that he is showing his mercy to, right? If you're a vessel of mercy, then you are holding mercy. You are a vase full of mercy, right? And so who are those whom are, that are vessels of mercy? And Paul answers it, right? Those whom that are called by God. And here he states in this passage that some of those are Jews, though not all, and not all Jews will be saved. And then there are some Gentiles put in this mix as well. It's a very interesting thought. In fact, I, I think that's a very shocking statement that if you are a Jew, you'd be like, what? What are you talking about? You know, is, this is, are you kidding me? Jew, I'm a Jew. 
And you're going to let these Gentiles get that? They didn't receive the promises of God from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they didn't have the Old Testament law. How can they be saved? And the Gentiles, they're on the other side saying, you talking about me? I don't even know who you are. You didn't reveal to me your law for thousands of years like you did the Jews. I mean, this would have been shocking to both peoples. And I think this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what God is doing. God is allowing the Gentiles to be grafted into the promises that he had given the Jews thousands of years earlier. And so the thought had always been up to this point that these Jews, this ethnic people group that God had chosen, were, you know, safe. They were good to go, right? And this probably explains a lot of their, uh, the Jewish um, complacency with the mandates of Scripture. And because, and, I mean, ultimately you think, well, well I'm good to go. I was chosen, my, my country, my people were chosen by God. My bloodline was chosen by God from, from this point forward. And, and, and surely... That is good enough to save me. Of course, I am a Jew. I mean, every bit, 100% from my my head down to my toes. I ought to be good to go, right? But then Paul, in verses 25 through 29, begins to unpack this a little bit. He begins to use Old Testament scriptures to do this. So a Jewish authority, I mean, the Jews would uphold the Old Testament even today, right? So he's using the scriptures that the Jews would hear and know to explain to them that this salvation is not just to some Jews, but Gentiles as well. And this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So let's read uh, verses 25 and uh, 26. As indeed, he says in Hosea, so he's referencing the book of Hosea here, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And this is just a beautiful, beautiful picture. And he's using the story of Hosea and Gomer. And he's using it as an example of how God shows mercy to Gentiles. The Gentiles were not God's people yet, but they were about to be, right? And so the Gentiles, they didn't receive those covenantal promises to Abraham. But this wasn't part of their life up until this point. This wasn't a part of their history, their story, right? They had been grafted in at this moment, and now they could begin to be call, call Abraham their father, not by biology and bloodline, but spiritually their father, right? The promises given to Abraham, now they can, they can take part in too, right? And so Paul uses this story of, of Hosea and Gomer to give this example to show that if God has once before taken a people that did not know him, and now they do know him, that he could do it again in the Gentiles. I mean, this is a simple example of, I did it once before, watch me do it again, right? And so why Hosea and Gomer? I mean, little backstory here on Hosea and Gomer, just incredible if you've never heard this. God had told Hosea to marry and have kids with Gomer. Now, the only awkward thing up until this point in the story is a dude married a a chick named Gomer, right? That's the only bad thing that's happened. Uh, No joke, I'm not lying about what I'm about to say. A few years ago, we preached this, and there was a lady in the audience named Gomer. I'm not kidding this at all. So if your name is Gomer, I'm just having fun. I apologize. You can make fun of me later. My great-grandmother's name was Tamer Goldilocks McFerrin. We'll just, you know, there we go. So it's good. Not making that up either, I'm afraid. 
Isn't it awesome growing up in like the deep south, eastern Appalachian mountains? You know, it's just, yeah, so good. Oh, goodness. So, back to Jose and Gomer. <laughs> the only, the really, the, the thing here was that Gomer was a prostitute, okay? So, God wanted to show through this marriage a picture of what Israel was to God. That Gomer had been unfaithful to Hosea, and then God's people had been prostituting themselves out to other gods. Now, we recognize this is pretty strong language. You know, this, this could be very offensive to us, that we would be prostitutes giving ourselves in that way to other gods. But this is intentional, intentional language given to wake us up to what we do when we follow other gods. This is exactly what God is trying to get through our our heads. And so Hosea refuses to divorce Gomer, and even though she was unfaithful, even though it didn't matter, showing how God is going to stay true to his promises, just like Hosea stayed true to his promise and covenant. And then Hosea and Gomer have three children, Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami. Now, their, their meanings of their names were very specific. Jezreel means, I will, God said, I will sow judgment and defeat the northern kingdom of Israel. So if you, Old Testament history, there was a, uh, the kingdom of Israel split. The southern kingdom stayed and, and, uh, and, and tried to follow the ways of the Lord. Northern kingdom sort of split there, went off to worship their other gods. And so therefore this judgment then comes down on the northern kingdom in the time of Hosea and Gomer's life. And so that's what he's getting at. And then Lo-Ruhamah's name meant no compassion. And Lo-Ami's name meant not my people. Therefore, what you kind of saw referenced a minute ago in Romans 9, right? And so um, then after they had these three children, Gomer says, see you later. She's out. Goes off, begins to prostitute herself out and, and to other lovers. I mean, just even to the point the lowest part of her story was that she had then begun and found herself to, to be auctioned off in the slave market. And so Hosea hears the news and God tells Hosea, go buy her back. And so Hosea in this great, magnificent act of mercy and grace shows up to this market and you could imagine the pain and the, this terrible to see the one you had committed your earthly life to standing before everyone and an auctioneer saying, who'll give me $30? I'll give you 30, 50, I've got 50. And Hosea stops it in his tracks and he says, I will give you everything I have. Everything. Is this not the story of our God to us? Is this not the same story? Hosea bought back his wife, and then God changed the name of his children. Jezreel, the meaning went from God sowing judgment and defeat to God sowing the land again with the people. God was faithful to his promises. He never kept him from being faithful. Then the other two children's names, the negative in Hebrew is low. So no or not in, in Hebrew is that. That got dropped from the other two children's names. So no compassion went to compassion and not my people went to my people. 
And so you begin to see God restoring this relationship. Grace had been given and love had been shown and mercy had triumphed. So why did Paul use this story? I mean, the point is, right? God is gracious. He is merciful. He calls sinners like me back to himself. He... He takes us off the slave market. He buys us back, not to just give us our freedom and send us on our merry way, but to call us his bride, to know us in that kind of relationship. How incredible our God is. It's so good that we are not a people who has never experienced compassion anymore. And that we are not a people who has been labeled to say that, that you cannot be my people anymore. In fact, we have been made sons and daughters of an eternal king. I love it. And for us, there's even a greater story here. We have reason to praise because if I look around this room, I don't know or see many ethnic Jews in this place. You are not... Israelites, you are not Jewish, many of you. You may have some in you, right? But you are not 100% Jew. And so therefore for us, this means we are Gentiles and we can share in the salvation of our God. We can reap in these promises. How good our God is. I began to read this this week and, and this was the first thing that God showed me. And, and I was dealing with a particular situation and trying to navigate something difficult in a, in a relationship and, that I had and trying to lead well and do the God-honoring thing. And I was praying, Lord, that you would show me where, where I'm wrong. And after reading this, my prayer, I, I, I was praying this, that same prayer after reading this text and God just stopped me in my tracks and it began to say, no, God that I would show grace and mercy as you have shown me a Gentile grace and mercy. See, when we understand this is who our God is, that it changes our identity and transforms us to the point that it doesn't matter what he requires of us, that we will say yes to. He has changed us to the point that it doesn't matter what he asks of us. It, the answer is yes when we begin to understand this is what our God has done. And for the Gentiles, we have the opportunity to be included in the salvation of God in Christ alone. Sola Christus, right? And so then Paul continues on in the passage, reading verses 27 through 29. He continues with an Isaiah passage. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. So the promise given to Abraham still is, these promises are showing up, right? That he would make Israel as many as the sand of the sea. Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And here's the next example of God's mercy. If that wasn't enough for us, right? That he will save a remnant of Israel. Not only Gentile will be saved, but Jew. 
And Paul here is a beneficiary of this truth. I mean, he, he, he is wanting his brothers and sisters to know this God. And notice again, the grace of God being the only reason that anyone is saved in this passage. If God had not left an offspring, then we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, wicked cities that did not fall or that fell in, in judgment, that had rebelled against God. And Paul says that that remnant of Jews that is saved can't take credit in preserving themselves from that kind of destiny. The credit goes to God and him alone, right? Sola Christus. If God doesn't show us mercy, then we, be, we experience death and judgment. Salvation in Christ alone brings us into this personal relationship with God. And notice here that this, this salvation extends to, to people from, from every background, whether they're pagan or religious, and every type of ethnicity. No longer is this just secluded and, and, and includes only and excludes the world and includes only the Jews. No, this is for the Gentiles as well. This is opened up to the world. And I think this reminds us of two things. First of all, none of us, we, none of us are too far from God. None of us are too far for God to save. I mean, the Gentiles didn't even know of this God. They did not even worship him in this way, and yet God had saved, right? And, and number two, since this has nothing to do with ethnicity, then there is no place in heaven for racism. Heaven will be filled with people from every tribe and tongue and, and, and nation, and so we look at this, that means then there's no place in God's church today, this church, for racism to be a part of it, right? We have to take stands on what God has taken stands for, and he's taken a stand for us, the Gentiles, the nations. And so we continue on in Romans 9, and we begin to shift gears here in 30 through 33. So we have heavily focused on God's sovereignty through this chapter. And, and the reason why is because Paul focuses on it. And now he, he shifts gears into man's responsibility. So let's read this and then we'll continue that conversation. So verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? Well, yeah, that's true. Gentiles who have not pursued righteousness have attained it through faith in Christ alone, right? All right, continue on. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why didn't they re re succeed? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. So up to this point, we have seen Paul talk about the sovereignty of God, and then he begins to talk about the pursuit, right? Our responsibility as man from verse 30 all the way into chapter 10, verse 21. Okay, so uh, let me just say, this is our last week in Romans, so we're really going to hit all chapter 10 starting in the fall. So, but let me just remind you of something R.C. said last week. 
Um, he told us last week that there's this tension, that we have to hold in tension God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and that they do not contradict one another. They do not offend one another. They do not oppose that they are compatible and we must hold them both up as if they're 100% true because we believe that's what the Bible, I believe that's what the Bible does. It holds them up as if they were both 100% true. Now, I believe that because if you look how Paul transitions from verse 29 to verse 30, he doesn't give us like a little uh, a, a paragraph to justify how we should see man's responsibility and God's sovereignty together. He just naturally flows from one into the other as if there was no big deal, as if they are both true and as if they both should be believed. And so Paul has told us the reason that Gentiles were being saved and the Jews, you know, too, because ultimately God was sovereign. But now he's going to tell us that it was the Jews' fault that they did not believe because they failed to get something right. This is where it's at. So the question is for us, as we begin to understand, what did they get wrong? Because I don't want to get it wrong, you know? I don't want to get it wrong when it comes to God and salvation. i got to get this right. Why did Israel reject it? Well, I think there's two reasons. First of all, they sought salvation in the wrong way. So there is a right way and a wrong way. There is a right way and a wrong way. And then secondly, they rejected the Savior. Remember that stumbling stone comment? We'll get to that in a minute, okay? So let's answer the first question. Well, then how did they do it in the wrong way? How did they do it? Well, Paul tells us they sought salvation by works. They thought that their justification, their being pronounced innocent before God, that's how it's justification, right? Being pronounced innocent before God occurred and was granted to them because they prayed long prayers or they ate clean food or they kept the Sabbath day holy, right? However, salvation has never, ever, ever been about that. It's always been by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, sola Christus. And so I think this is a pretty relevant topic for our culture, don't you? I mean, Paul is saying that there is a wrong way to get to God that don't get you to God, right? When I was a seventh grader, I remember sitting in my little church growing up, and this young man came into our small group, and he sits down that morning, and he was a friend of a friend kind of thing, and, and uh, he began to explain to us his view of, of God, and that God was this God who sat high up on the mountain. This very vivid picture, he, he, I'll never forget this. And he began to talk about how all the world religions, they worship the same God ultimately, and that each world religion is a path up to the same God. And that you just gotta do good at what religion you choose. My friends, that is false, because the Bible does not say that. That is false. That idea is rampant in our world. That idea is rampant in our world. We tend to think that if someone is zealous in their religious behaviors, that no matter what religion they, they participate in, that in the end it's going to end up good for them. In the end they're going to be with God. And this is just not biblically accurate. It is not true. Paul says that this is absolutely a wrong way to pursue God. Absolutely. And in the end, you're not going to get him. So that's why it's imperative for us to preach in Christ alone to the nations the Jews are seeking God in the wrong way and they will not find him in the end. In their works-based salvations, two things. They underestimated their own sin and they underestimated their cost of salvation. 
me illustrate this. If I gave my son a dollar and told him to go in the store and buy that brand new, nice, shiny bike that he wanted, he would stand there not understanding the cost that would need to be incurred to get the one thing that he wanted with all that he had in that moment. That dollar is not going to stack up to the debt that we have incurred before a holy God. That dollar isn't going to do it. My good works will not do it. And we act like children before God. We underestimate our sin and underestimate the cost that it took to buy our salvation. Most people who pursue God through good works don't realize that their debt is that big. They don't realize that they can't overcome that debt on their good works because it's tremendous. Our debt is so overwhelming because our God is so holy and perfect. One theologian says it this way. It appears that whenever men, under the empty pretense of being zealous for righteousness, put confidence in their works, they do, in their furious madness, carry on war with God himself. We carry on war when we put confidence in ourselves, in our works. And so the next question that we have to answer from Paul is why did the Jews reject the Savior? Well, remember the stumbling stone? The Old Testament describes Jesus as the stumbling stone over and over, even the stone that the builders rejected. And you see this time and time and time again. That's why we need to read and reread our Bible so we'll pick up on these things, right? And it means that the Jews did not want their Savior to look like this Jesus of the Bible. They didn't want a suffering servant. They wanted a political hero. They didn't want a homeless wanderer. They wanted a pampered prince, didn't they? They, they, didn't, they didn't want to be told to love their enemies. They wanted to crush their enemies. They did not want a cross and a sacrifice. They wanted a sword and a battle. See, there will always be people in this world that, that try to... Try to uh, change the real biblical Jesus. Many people, are, they're looking for a way around the cross. They don't, they don't like that. You mean my cost was that great that God sent his son? Yes, it was. It was that great. It was that great. My sin was that great. That's what it took to get me off the slave market and to make me a bride. They want a relationship with God, but they don't want to die to get it. They don't want to die to themselves. They want a friendship with God, but realize that that. That, that would mean separation from sin and this world and the things of this world. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Sola Christus. And that's not a popular saying in our coexist inclusive culture, is it? I mean, the truth is that if we do not uphold this, then we will be crushed by God. I mean, if he is a stumbling stone, then either we will stumble over him and be broken unto salvation or that stone will fall upon us and crush us in judgment. May we be faithful to preach in Christ alone. Salvation by this human works, self-righteousness kind of concept, it always falls short. I, I know what I'm incapable of. 
We need God's righteousness imputed to us. So that means it is imperative that at the cross, the perfected, righteous Jesus Christ would trade places with my unrighteous self and take the punishment in which I deserved. It is imperative that that must happen for us to incur righteousness and to be right before this holy, good God that we have of Scripture. And we have to be careful not to try and, and like combine efforts and like team up with God and put too much favor in our responsibility and our actions. Because this kind of muddies the water a little bit, you know? I mean, if, if salvation is all God and has nothing to do with us, so we don't need to rob him of glory and say, well, maybe my good works have, have something to maybe tip the scales in my favor. No. No, they don't. Our good works have nothing to do with us receiving salvation. It is all God. Salvation is not some joint project where we like do our best up to a certain point and then God like fills in the rest of the blanks for us to get to heaven. It is not that way. I mean, just look at the Gentiles of Scripture. Why did God save them? They didn't even try to seek God. Why did God save us? We're Gentiles. We didn't even try to seek God. That is enough example for me to say that salvation is all God through faith alone in Christ alone. I want to ask our band to come out. As I was kind of thinking about, like, what does this mean for us? Like, what is the point in which we drive home here? What is the question for us? I mean, I think the question comes down to Christ. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? I mean, is, is he this rock of salvation? Is he this foundation and bedrock upon which you build your storm-proof dwelling upon? Is he the only way, the only truth, and the only life in which you have found salvation in God? Or is he your stumbling block? I mean, that's a big or. It is... Is he a Jesus that you have molded to your preference and not allowed to be the real Jesus of the Bible as God has told his own story? Let him tell a story because it is good. And know that there is only one way to God, and that is through Christ alone. Sola Christus. I mean, we have nothing to take part in this salvation. We have nothing to give toward this effort. There is a right way to find God, and it is through Christ alone. And I'm, I'm pale, I just, I do as the Bible says, and, and I, I plead that you would believe in the one true Jesus Christ, who upon the cross has traded his righteousness for my unrighteousness, and will do the same for you as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a good and merciful God. That you have paid whatever price was needed to be paid to fulfill our debt, to remove us from the slave market, and to make us your bride. And God, I, I, I confess that I am a sinner and that I fall short of your goodness and your glory. And I, I pray that, that no matter where we find ourselves in this room, that I pray that, that we would remind ourselves of the goodness of you in restoring our relationships.
God, I have nothing to be able to, to strive and even try to restore my relationship with you. But I trust that you have everything. So in this moment, God, that we would respond with your glory on our lips and your, your glory on our hearts and give you the praise that is due that you are everything and you are the only one who can save and you have chosen to do that in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray.